What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we're joined by Wyatt Bales, Chief Customer Officer at Blueprint X. Wyatt got his start as an analyst at Unilever, where he got the knack for using Teradata systems and decided to go consulting for the vendor themselves. At Teradata, he implemented marketing automation and analytics software for a few Fortune 100 customers. And a few colleagues of his went over to a lesser-known company called Marketo, where he started as employee number 201. He moved up to Solutions Architect, where he focused on revenue attribution and was assigned to some of Marketo's largest accounts, such as Microsoft, Facebook, and Philips 66. Three years later, Wyatt took a senior marketing role at Uber, where he eventually relocated to Amsterdam to lead their enterprise CRM strategy team, where he was the principal architect for Uber's global rollout of Marketo's ecosystem. After being a customer at Blueprint X while at Uber, he got the itch to go back into consultant and open a new Blueprint location in Amsterdam, where he led the European consulting practice. Today, Wyatt manages the global PL and a team of 85 Blueprint consultants and engineers. Wyatt, thanks so much for your time today, man. We're uh, pumped to chat. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, JT. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, let's dive right in. Like you have such a breadth of experience with working with so many cool different companies and MarTech and the B2B space and beyond. I'm really curious, like in terms of like the common threads between all the different companies, like between the types of challenges that folks are are focused on, the types of solutions. Yeah, I'd love to 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 glean a little wisdom from you on on the common threads that you've seen. Sure. Well, I was trying to think of, uh, you know, prep before the call about what's a little bit more unique. You know, a lot of people focus on the tech and the newest technologies and cool widgets and integrations, but I don't think headcount comes out enough in terms of spend and how customers can never get uh, approved team size and what they want to accomplish. So you, you always hear one thing, which is, well, I don't have enough people to do that, or I'm a marketer that's only got a team of two or three. And so the common thread that I think I'd like to chat quite a bit with you guys and get your feedback as well is just, Hiring has never been something that marketing has, it's come easy for, I feel like, mm. and you always have to fight tooth and nail and technology almost goes against that where it like discourages hiring sometimes to a degree because of all automation and AI, right? So we now have kind of turned that conversation on its head where marketing technology, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, is reducing headcount and automating a lot of that. And I think that's where especially within the enterprise space, headcount remains flat. And now they're implementing technology specifically within marketing operations, copywriting, and creative dev areas where it's becoming automation. So that's a common thread that we're seeing is how do I reduce my P&L costs by reducing headcount, which is a dark topic. I get that, but <laughs> that's what's interesting and what we're seeing a lot in the space right now. Yeah, it is definitely fascinating, especially with like a, the explosion of, of Chad GPT and uh, actually recently spoke to um, a local university uh, students that were about to hit the job market. And I was just like pounded with AI questions like are entry level jobs disappearing? Like 
what should I be doing right now? Like one student even said that like they're like they have a they have trouble sleeping right now because they're like worried that they're going to have mm -hmm. a marketing job when they graduate. And so like my point was to try to keep folks excited like there there is, you know, like still for sure some folks that are uh, replacing jobs are no longer like opening that headcount. But like this idea of technology, like uh, JT said this to me like uh, recently we have as much experience with AI tools as a lot of the new grads coming out of university and school right now. Like it is brand new for a lot of, of marketers, uh, especially like from, from a generative AI standpoint. Right. So yeah, like I'm, I'm curious, like what, what advice you would have for someone who is about to graduate right now and is, is feeling some anxiety about like the, the job prospects with, with AI potentially replacing some of those entry-level gigs. To be to give something really, really tangible and specific is SQL skills, as ridiculous as it sounds, that if you're in strategy or if you just want to become a market operations or if you just want to talk about analytics, the moment you know SQL, you can write your own path. Because you know, let's 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 say that the industry takes a really dark turn and you have less strategists, copywriters, designers, you're still gonna need data scientists who can go get mm -hmm. the data, who can massage the data, who can set up a pipeline to feed into this other system. That is still ways and ways away of being automated mm -hmm. away. Like we don't have any visibility, at least in, in my experience of doing that. So if you're struggling, but at least you can put on your resume that you can write a query to join two data sets together and build a dashboard, hell yeah, you're going to get a job anywhere. And there's, there's zero issues. I mean, I Blueprint's constantly hiring. I'm more than happy to, to take somebody that's a data analyst or scientist or whatever you'd like to you know brand that as. That would be my one thing. And, and don't be intimidated by SQL. It's not like this nasty code um, language that maybe if you're non-technical would be um, used to. And that would be my one piece of advice. Yeah, I I, I have to completely agree with that. Like the technical skill set, like the specifics of SQL, I think is really is really a great takeaway. But I found like just having that technical lens and using these AI tools, you're starting to think more about integrations and stuff. Yeah. Like I think that the type of marketer who's going to be successful in the next 10, 15 years may actually have a fundamentally different DNA uh, than what you what you grew up with coming out of marketing school, like the more content writing where you can use ChatGPT to outcompete a, a writer. You know, I'm I'm not one in favor of re replacing human writers, but it's hard to argue with the speed of the results. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm curious in terms of the technical skill set and and that DNA profile of of the marketer or the martech person. Like, do you think we'll see more emphasis on development type things? Do you think that'll just become a competitive advantage for those who are more interested in in the technical aspects of marketing and any integrations? I definitely think there's going to be two camps where there is going to be more of a shift for for technical and definitely advising to the youngers in their earlier in their career in tech. Technical experience also breeds more credibility to me. Your strategy, you can be an incredible strategist, but you could be also seen and be a little bit skeptical because it's buzzwords and empty gestures and false promises, as we know that marketing yeah. a lot of times, unfortunately, is. <laughs> but the moment you can write a query or talk about an API integration or endpoint and write just a little bit of code and then have that credibility of speaking technically, not only do you have the respect of the developers and engineers, but also senior executives, you know, senior executives get a little intimidated, like, oh, well, they're technical, they could easily do that. But then they also can whiteboard a lead funnel and talk about conversions and generating and nurturing leads. That's a huge skill set. If you can, mm -hmm. if you can do both, you write your ticket anywhere. But I think JT, to, to kind of your question, not that you asked it, but if I can elaborate on it, like really specifically on where 
the ideal marketer that I, if I could redo my career again, where I would go is combining exactly what you mentioned, which is how do I try to leverage AI and ChatGPT and those types of things to suggest and provide more creative examples than I can already come up with myself, such as copywriter to design, but then integrate that into a wider stack. So one of the, one of the most exciting things we're going to write now that I was really excited to share with you guys is bolting on work management to mark automation and end to end, you can call it content supply chain, whatever buzzword you like. That now is a reality where a campaign request brief can go all the way through market automation, such as a Braze, Marketing Cloud, or Marketo, and be sent out the door with not a single developer, marketing operations person going through the entire process. Like that's not science fiction. That is something that I've got PowerPoint decks behind this Zoom call right now that we're building and <laughs> going through, right? So going back to your point, JT, about like what marketer would be really valuable for me is if you're 24 years old and you have been using chat GPT and all the AI tools constantly, but you also have a mindset on how you can integrate those to enterprise tools. Oh boy. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's the sweet spot because what we're doing is banks and really big healthcare companies want a work management tool like Asana or Workfront to automatically come up with a few keywords that gives it out to ChatGPT that writes up copy, mm -hmm. sends it over to localization, also AI, sends it over to compliance and GDPR, also AI, but they don't really know how to navigate it. And to be truthful with this, like my team, we're Googling too, because we're yeah. learning. So if you're a young <laughs> grad that knows how to do all those AIs, then I'll sit you next with a 45 year old architect that's been doing database integrations for 20, 30 years. And then that's a match made in heaven. Right. That, mm -hmm. So that is like the career path that I would love to be able to engage and work with. Super cool. Yeah. I feel like there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to, I want, I want to unpack the different pieces of, of what you talked about there. Uh, maybe uh, you can go through some of your, your slides and in, uh, in the background there. So like you talked about using kind of a project management tool or, or workforce management, like Asana, Notion, whatever, basically enabling the project manager or the campaign requester to also be the fulfiller and the implementer of the campaign. So all the pieces would just get created in the Marketo, the campaign would be sent out, and then even like pieces of the reporting in the analysis would be automated as well. Like walk, walk us through all, all the pieces there. Super curious. Oh, buckle up, boys. This is this is what <laughs> this is where we're in our life for the past six months. All right. So again, reiterating, this is reality and what we're building. It's not science fiction. Campaign brief comes in and workfront has a request form that sits inside the platform. Very, very huge Adobe tool that you can customize to the ends of the earth. Imagine if it's got 25 different fields, target audience, persona, copy, um, naming convention, tags, channels, all the different criteria that we've pre-done all the strategy and everything else. They submit that. So if I'm Phil and I submit that request, I've already done the whiteboarding and the strategy and everything with the team, the senior executives, yeah. and come up with a campaign idea. And we know our marketing calendar. We know what's scheduled. But I want to do... Um, a reoccurring nurture for top of funnel dormant leads, let's say, for example, like dormant leads that we want to retarget. Okay. You submit the form. It takes those keywords and persona that you submitted and it's going out to chat GPT, scraping the website and the internet to come up with five examples of the emails and then kicks it back to Phil, the requester for the campaign, please approve and or tweak and redline which email you would like to use. And this is all within the workfront tool. 
right? Adobe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Adobe bought Figma. Imagine the cool interactive all screen yeah. where you're doing this type of live. It's, it's cool shit, man. So you're like <laughs> that right there gets signed off. You click approve. It goes to compliance. There's also an AI compliance area that I'm still learning a little bit of. So we're not using that yet, but that can go to an AI agency. The moment the AI agency opens up that note, the clock starts ticking and Workfront can track the spend and the time that the agency mm-hmm. may be billing the client to. This is where it comes down to ROI. You know, we're going to talk about that later, right? So agency approves, it's compliant, automatically get kicks over to localization across 45 languages. You don't need any sort of manual involvement there. It goes out to localization tool, comes back. So I now have a Workfront project with signed off 45 localized emails in each language here. And it's fully approved. And then Marketing Cloud, of course, has its own content asset, asset API that you can create the corresponding journey, email assets, and everything all set there. You, Phil, see that there's a response from Marketing Cloud that it's been created, it's packaged up, and it's ready to go. You press send, all from an email that you get, by the way, and it goes out the door of Marketing Cloud, responds back to Workfront, sent. So that end-to-end is only Phil working by himself all the way through. And then this, like if that wasn't even enough, we're pushing all of this to Tableau so that every single step along the way that Phil was opening the email and pushing the project along and reaching out to an agency for compliance and localization, all those touch points and gaps and cadence and as the the clock is ticking is getting pushed to Tableau for campaign request velocity. So not only are we just talking about campaign performance, we're talking about how many individuals at the company did it take to launch this campaign that successfully converted 35 people, cost per lead, all the normal stuff we know it have. So not only are the executives getting the performance of the campaign, they're getting performance of how many employees it took to launch the campaign, how long. So like you, you can tell I get really excited about it, but it's also terrifying, not because mm-hmm. of AI, like everybody's, you know, cautiously about that. But the fact now that, Phil, as a marketing strategist, can also be a copywriter, marketing operations, even an analyst to a degree, because you're you're able to carry it through all the way from end to end. And so this is what banks right now, big healthcare and pharma are in because they're launching so many campaigns and they can't staff it and job retention is impossible. So what do you do? You throw a couple million dollars at some enterprise software instead of having to retain 45 market operations people. That's incredibly difficult. No kidding. That's super exciting. And like, I like that you say, like, this isn't science fiction. Like we're, we're working on unbuilding some of this stuff right now. Like the, the things that come to mind to me, um, like as, as a marketing ops person, uh, I'm not worried about like this becoming like super popular that it's replacing all marketing ops job. Cause the first piece that you talked about was, okay, after we submit that request, like we still went through the whiteboarding and the strategy piece of it. Like that's that's where I feel like a lot of the ops pros could eventually migrate to is like the idea that you, you walked us through right now is is fascinating. And I feel like it, it automates a lot of the, the batch and blast sort of approach right now with, with marketing campaigns. Like how do we reactivate this like list of dormant leads? What it doesn't do yet, but like maybe you're even thinking about like how to incorporate some of those pieces is like the propensity models about like how do we personalize the right message for like all these different micro segments within that population of dormant leads. Like instead of sending like five variations of that email that GPT spot out and we're doing ABN experiments, maybe we're doing a different, uh, we're using a different model that's trained on like 
higher quality types of data, or it's trained on our own data set and our own previous users and the history of those users. And instead of like just coming up with five emails to blast to that whole population, it's coming up with individual micro segments of the right type of email to send to this person based on when they created their free trial or like they, they set up their account. And like, maybe it's not just the one email too, right? Like you talked about marketing cloud's ability to their API is connected to their journey tool. So it's like creating a bunch of different touch points and maybe sending time optimizations involved in there too. So I like, uh, I love that you broke it down, but yeah, I'm, I'm like trying to like from a defensive background, like, yeah, but like marketing ops people are, are still going to be involved in the, in that, in that part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I, I should put a massive caveat that the space, a lot of that we live in is, is these really big corporations of, you know, 30,000 employees and enterprise stuff, which is definitely not going to relate to the majority of the world. But I think you nailed it there, Phil, is that. I, I've always, when I was doing deployment day in and day out, you know, the burnout after 18 months to two years, we kind of get hungry for something else. Maybe that's what excites me about this is that I now could be freed up to not just do deployment, but to tweak these massive automations, but then pivot over to channel performance and, and truly focus on optimizing to your point about content and channel instead of just, oh, I forgot to approve this one asset and lock and load and stamp this field. Like not saying that's monotonous. That's all the nitty gritty that we've done in market operations for years, right? That's what our careers have been built on. And I'm not undermining that. But imagine if you get to do that 80% less and now focus really on the fun part of seeing and believing and having confidence in the performance of the analytics and dashboards and then tweaking based upon that. And finally getting to do the experiments that we've always dreamed about. You know, mm -hmm. A-B testing instead of a subject line is a joke. And we've always like thought that that was <laughs> testing. But what if we actually took the time to do a control and treatment to find proper statistical significance on running a cool campaign. We've always been really too busy and swamped to be able to like send qualified leads over to sales to take time to do that kind of stuff. But <laughs> maybe now with this technology that can free us up to do that. So yeah, that's a good, good, more positive way to spin it, Phil. I like that. <laughs> Something that pops out and <clears throat> I want to get it before my thought uh, disappears is the shape of the marketing department of the future, like what we're talking about here with like the campaign automation and stuff like I, I could totally see a full end to end solution with the creativity. Sorry, Phil, that 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 is wrapped up by these AI tools. But what I see more and more is, you know, going back to the SQL comment earlier. Uh, this need for these strong data models like you can't have your your AI tuned up and prompted. If your data underlying is is poor, that you don't have this configuration set up, um, maybe talk a little bit about how people are preparing today, or how should they should be preparing today for like an AI infused world where these capabilities that feel like science fiction are capable if you have the right underlying data. But there's some work to be done there. Um, I'm curious on your take on that. Yeah, I think um, a relevant example. So. The, the job that I had at Teradata, people may not recognize the name. But it's, it's, a, it's a very large company. It's kind of a competitive IBM. They're, all of Walmart's data predominantly sits in Teradata. And so it's like this massive database company back in the on-prem days. And I knew SQL decently well just because of the nature of the company and what you had to do and the types of the databases that they worked with. But then when I came to Uber, by no exaggeration... I swear it had to be like 60 or 70% of people knew SQL quite well, even better than mm -hmm. I did. And when that amount of the company, when you're sitting around with like a senior director and they pull up query builder and they just start writing SQL in front of you to be able to figure out something that you're trying to solve on the spot. It's so refreshing and it flattens the entire organization. Cause that no, that no longer means there's hierarchy. Like, well, why don't you go write that query into the analysis and come back to me? 
So I think it just kind of more accurately address your, your point there, JT, is that imagine if you had the ability to not be that, well, let me take that away and, and figure that out, but instead open up your laptop and write that query at that moment or to load up the segment and find the destination and to be able to filter through the different tables that you have there. To be that marketer that has the technical savvy just to do the basic data analytics and to find the data source and to be familiar with that, but then also speak with expertise on the business context, that is the still the unspoken golden balance between that. And those are unicorns in the industry. And so that's where I can't like, I can't double down enough is that if you can do the SQL and the data sciences, but then you can also speak at a confident, well-informed level about AI and how you can join those two together, you quickly will rise to the top in some of these most promising companies because, you know, Uber, for example, right now, and a lot of the bigger shops, they always try to build their own tools in-house. So you're either going to do really well there at a big tech shop, or you're going to be the unicorn at a small shop, which is also amazingly fun, where you get to do everything. And I highly recommend that to kind of do a startup. Or you're going to go to a giant cubicle farm enterprise company and still stand out because nobody knows what AI is there anyways, because they're just old people in cubicles, right? So that, again, like that skill set of the SQL, the data science combined with AI comfort level, but still not losing the business context what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I love the I love the take. I wanna I wanna play a bit of devil's advocate on on uh, and I agree with you about like I'm I'm thinking of like some of the folks uh, that are building these like text to SQL tools right now like in in the AI space. Like there's I was playing around with text to SQL AI. There's SQLQueryBuilder.com, AI to SQL. Like there's a lot of these like. Uh, companies coming out saying like, you don't need to spend time learning SQL right now. Like you're wasting your time. Just like a lot of folks are saying, like you're wasting your time learning how to code and and CSS because like GPD can do a lot of that stuff for you. And like, it doesn't let you like get to a certain level where you can like be at eye level and talk to like engineers and developers. But yeah. um, it, it, it like, do you think of it as like a way to help you learn maybe a bit faster? But yeah, just, just curious your take on those tools. Yeah, I, de I definitely, I think being a marketer and, and knowing SQL in conjunction with those tools is entirely fine. Like if you need to get into a really exotic example where you're trying to figure out what coalesce means or joining tables or the difference in unions, absolutely AI. But I think it's, it's a terrible analogy, but bear with me. But it, if your refrigerator has has turned off and you're you're worried about your food going bad and you're kind of looking around and your the living room lights on so your power's not out you don't have to be an electrician but to understand like a breaker box and to understand how a fuse can you know flip a switch like those fundamental things absolutely are still going to be critical in life skills and it you know don't put this on a buzzword or a bumper sticker because it's going to be a really stupid phrase but i i really do think that a life skill as a, as the future marketer is sequel you know i, I think at least the film the the familiarity of being able to do that in conjunction with AI, Phil, I think to your point is, is very valid where writing from scratch at the basic level is great, recommended to do the super exotic things on understanding trend lines and channel performance and join across three or four other tables. Absolutely use AI. But, you know, if you're presenting in the middle of a meeting, which is going to look more professional, the fact that you can edit a query yourself or, well, let me open up four different AI tabs and try to figure out the, which one, you know. <laughs> I love the analogy, the the yeah. fridge. It's super, super relevant. I don't think it's a bad one at all. 
I'll, I'll speak from a little bit of experience, not on the SQL side, but on like the JavaScript side. I've taught myself over the last couple of years a bit of JavaScript. I'm more on the SEO side anyways. But like ChatGPT in terms of generating code is wicked for like a great template and can be produce functional code, but it has to be very much vetted. Uh, I've found more than a few errors in the code and it also doesn't count for the full context of your situation. So I, I, I feel like I'm in the camp of learn your technicals, learn your background use these tools to accelerate and speed up your development process. Like, yeah, give me a template, give me something to work off of. But eventually somebody's going to call you out in a boardroom and say, well, how does that work? And if you don't know, it's going to become very obvious that AI is your best friend. Yeah, no, that's a much better way of putting it than I did, JT. I think accelerating what you already have as a foundation, I think is, is a perfect way of doing that. Yeah. We've got a couple topics on uh, CDP and, and data warehouses, and I feel like that's kind of a nice transition since we're we're chatting about data and, and SQL right now. Um, I think, uh, and like, I'd love your take here, but like, we're seeing that the MarTech industry is, is moving to what a lot of folks are calling this idea of like a warehouse native approach, where instead of making a copy of your data warehouse, like most CDPs do today, like most marketing automation platforms do today, um, everything lives on top of your data warehouse. The data is real time. Uh, you're using uh, SQL to query and, and build segments of, of lists, and, and maybe it's like a, a UI instead of like actual queries, but um, you don't have to pay for copying your database. So like the pricing structure changes. Um, I haven't come across like a bunch of these tools yet, but like uh, some of the companies solving this right now are like Vero, Message Gears, Castle.io. We're, we're chatting with the, the founder in the next couple of weeks. Uh, companies are solving this too on like the products analytics space as well, like uh, the amplitudes and the mix panels, like instead of creating another subset of your user database, which your data team has already done in the data warehouse and Redshift or BigQuery, um, they're, they're not duplicating that work there. So like, I'm just curious, like if you've heard of these tools, do you think that that's kind of the future of MarTech and how long would it take Marketo to adopt a, a warehouse native approach instead of charging per like people in their database? Yeah, so I I definitely think it is the way forward for enterprise. And I would I would kind of define enterprise as let's say you know ten thousand employees or more. I absolutely think that the need for an interface for market automation, both an interface as well as a duplicative database, is going to be blown away. Like I completely agree with that. And I think where we have a number of projects right now with customers that have either purchased a CDP such as Segment in the past, or they're trying to build their own from scratch, and it's no surprise that all of those same customers are revisiting the conversations of, well, can't we just like call a SendGrid or just some delivery service instead of doing all this? Because you're going through our API anyway with these market innovation tools. So can't we just package up HTML and then call a delivery service? And you're like, well, yeah, you can. And then it's like, well, well, can't we just query a view that you're going to stage for me with leads anyway? Because it's just, you know, we got a leads table. And I go, yeah, actually you can, right? But <laughs> You know, it's a, not a worthwhile tangent, but for our business as as a partner, that I'm I'm not I'm no longer vendor side, but we have to navigate that partner ecosystem where you've got right. Adobe's and you've got the the sales forces of the world that make money off of that. So I think for your, you've nailed it. Where the pricing model is going to change, which I've always thought marketing Marketo's pricing model and database size has been interesting versus marketing cloud on by Send. I think some vendors are going to do much better than others unless they pivot earlier on. But again, this just applies for enterprise. I still think the SMBs and the quick starts where you you migrate from like a MailChimp into a HubSpot and then a HubSpot into a Marketo, I think that'll still apply for SMB companies. And I don't see that going away. 
But I think JT mentioned it earlier, which I haven't seen anything yet, but I, I think it will happen is I think you're going to see a work management. So imagine like an Asana bolted on with a Marketo or a HubSpot would be better light where it's end to end. I think that is going to take up more of the SMB market. And then enterprise is going to be where you don't even have an interface, right? It's where you just, you really are just calling into a warehouse. So I, I, I definitely agree with that. But if then, you know, I'm not trying to pat my own back, but that's why another thing SQL is so important is imagine if you're on one of these customers teams and we are advising customers right now on how to make headcount decisions and org structure changes based upon them redoing their entire stack. Hmm. And it's, it's sounds again, like completely terrible to say, but when they pull up org charts, we make decisions crossing through individuals based upon their skill set. And you sure as hell believe it. Like somebody knows SQL, we'll, we'll put them over on the CDB project that we're doing a warehouse, right? So that comes down to that versatility of the skill set of don't just be the Marketo operation sin person that is purple family, which is great. And I grew, you know, my career was built upon the purple yeah. family and Marketo. I love that. <laughs> but be the purple fam that also can talk about, you know, cloud storage and being able to push between different integrations and, and kind of massage on that. So I think that's the future for sure. I love it. Yeah, it's a it's definitely an exciting world. Like you you talk about startups and like maybe that'll change a bit a bit slower there and like the database sizes are, are less of a concern from a pricing standpoint. But uh, I was like I'm currently part of a startup right now. Uh, we're about 150 people, and I was at Close, like a, a CRM startup beforehand. We had dealt with like a lot of inbound traffic at Close. Like we were heavy on SP, on SEO, and we drove like a ton of free trials. And we were stuck paying for all of those users in segment and all of those users in customer IO because like both tools charge per database size. But like we were building something out in BigQuery and we're just like, what are we doing here? We're creating three of the same customer databases and we're not generating revenue from any of these cases. And at my current startup, we're like in the health tech. So we get a bunch of eligible employees that we could send our application to and help them quit their tobacco usage or, or, uh, or drinking. But we don't generate revenue until they actually download the application. So we pay a lot from a storage perspective. So like e even in startups, I think that like, you know, people are mindful of this idea of like, creating a bunch of these like same instances of databases because more and more startups are starting with data teams like people that don't just know sql like they're analytics experts or like data engineers data scientists and like like we started in martech like 10 15 years ago and this idea of a data team was just like foreign right like in, in startups but today it's totally a thing like i'm at a small startup and we've got a pretty big data team but yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see how how it does change because like on on top of that, we have the whole debate. I'm sure you've like been uh, been keeping up with some of that, like about packaged versus the composable uh, CDP. Like, is segment just going to reign uh, in the market forever, or are like these new tools like Snowplow and Census and High Touch going to really disrupt how people are activating their marketing data just on their warehouse and sending that to Marketos and, and SendGrids or, or whatever? So, I'd love to just get your take there. Like what uh what are wise thoughts on the 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 big debate right now of package versus a composable CDP? Well, I would say uh, so. We have a couple of customers that right now are are we doing an RFP process with them about which CDP to get? And historically, I've always come across really really 
sexy clients that have amazingly clean stack, you know, really put together and they always have segment. And I've always had like, I always put segment kind of on a shelf because, you know, you look at those ecosystem diagrams, like, man, this is really put well together. And then you look at some of their campaign and their dashboards and it's, it seems like segment has always fit into there somehow. But then we're also doing a couple of RFPs right now where Salesforce's data cloud is coming into play there. And the way that I'm seeing Salesforce, bear with me here because it's, it's kind of, it'll answer a little bit of it, but then also get your guys' feedback as well, where Salesforce is doing this interesting play where they've kind of repurposed Pardot that we see as really focused more on an ABM or B2B tool. And then that's obviously just going to stay bolted on a sales cloud as a stack. Marketing cloud, now it's slowly being, not slowly, but it's it's going to be the exact target that's not going to be moved into the rest of sales cloud. But it's it's still not going to have that ABM B2B component as much, not, not great at lead scoring. But then data cloud kind of comes in, which is still going to be the same architecture and sit on top of your Salesforce stack, but it can do some of those high transactional activity, really aggregate kind of Kafka API events and huge scale while just still sitting on top of your existing database. So that's the reason why I'm not like answering it very well, Phil, because I will admit that I'm still learning a little bit more about the space. But what I do see customers is they're either from the segment space and realizing that the licensing cost is really starting to trip them up over time and it doesn't really fit something that they want to keep long term to then like to name drop one of our great customers, Soda.io here in, in next door in, in Belgium. They're a data integrity solution that sits right on top of like Snowflake or your or your your database. And it just tells you how clean or how ugly your data is. And so the way that I kind of see this is maybe not a traditional CDP platform, any duplicative database, but just a warehouse that has a plethora of all these tools that sit on top of it that just tells you what exactly you have inside of your warehouse. And then if it comes down to these outbound API calls, like you're mentioning on doing email delivery or campaign execution, I definitely think again for the warehouse space, sorry, for the enterprise space, that is where the future is. But I'll admit, Phil, like I, I, I'd be curious on your guys' take because I, I'm still learning about it. Jet, my old boss at Marketo, he's written a lot of thought leadership in this. And I'm I'm always like digesting his content on on LinkedIn in terms of what you guys are thinking. Oh, yeah. I'd love to get a referral to get him on the show, maybe. Because like I, I asked I, and I asked a lot of our, our recent guests because I'm thinking of doing like a, a kind of a, a repackaged episode of just like me and GT. But then we feature like snippets of everyone's answer where we we ask that question, basically. So like uh, like yourself, a lot of people aren't like, you know, like I'm a big fan of segment. I've used segment. Uh, a lot of companies do and it works really well. But I'm also mindful of this idea that like segment is trying to do a lot of different things for a company right yeah. now. And if there's like seven of these other companies that do just the one thing that segment promises to be doing doing like maybe i should pay a bit of attention and, and kind of invest in, in in that tool or see kind of what it does because like when you sign up with segment like you're you're locked into a vendor for a long time and they they have a great pricing model like they get startups hooked on like their their free plan until they say they hit a certain like number of events and like it, it's a great tool and it works well but yeah we're, we're going through the process right now my startup of like investigating the composable or cdp route because just recently segment is is hipaa compliant and, and they weren't beforehand so it was kind of a non-starter there but yeah it's a it's an interesting space for sure i feel like the the thesis or the the common themes of uh, our chat so far is just like with ai and like everything changing in, in the martech landscape like the one thing that stands through time is 
operational professionals who understand data, who can navigate the landscape, know how to query a database, know how integrations and APIs are kind of like talking to other tools to do something in the end, right? Like this beautiful automated campaign batch approach that you walked us through, like it still needs to be set up by someone. And in a lot of cases, there's going to be engineers in there, but the marketer and the operation person comes in and they're the ones suggesting like different tools that come in because different endpoints or like better APIs, like uh, Bobby was uh, pretty big on, or I don't know, it wasn't Bobby, it was uh, another guest that talked about how crappy uh, Salesforce API still is, but like it's it's a complicated space for sure. Um, uh, I'm going to maybe pivot back to AI a little bit because like I think like this idea of like, um, like, you can't really do anything with AI today unless you said like your data is in a good spot. And I feel like, you know, for a lot of companies, like I consulted a little bit, like freelance a bit, like maybe JT can talk to this. Like you look under the hood and stuff is super messy. Like whether they use segment or not, like no one has a perfect uh, instance of their database and there's duplicates everywhere and stuff is messy. And when you're like just throwing an AI layer on top of that, like it's, it's you'd like garbage in garbage out type of argument there. Right. So I'm curious, like what, what are your, your thoughts on like what, what excites you the most about like the potential applications of AI? Like we talked about automating uh, batch and blast campaigns. I tease a little bit like propensity models and send time optimization, but like a lot of these things have been around for like decades, right? Like Marketo's automated lead scoring, uh, HubSpot's got automated lead scoring. Like a lot of these tools have send time optimization. Like what excites Wyatt the most about like the, the five next five, 10 years about like AI's layer on top of these tools? I think for me, so a, a little bit of a blueprint promotion, sorry for self-promotion there is that yeah, yeah, no, go for what, it. what we really want to do is we're, we're trying to, I want to do a side-by-side comparison and we're investing on some of these um, PhD grads in Liverpool, which is where our, our global headquarters is on where I want to do an Adobe Sensei, Salesforce, Einstein, and every other large vendor AI side-by-side comparison for channel optimization. So that's, mm. that's answering your question, Phil. Like what, what excites me the most is is both as a consumer and as a marketer and even as an executive where channel optimization has been just a crapshoot for so long because customers have never been able to take their paid spend and throw it in with the rest of their channel campaign strategy. Like, cool, people can say like, oh, but I've got a Tableau dashboard that tells me my impressions and my cost for like, but like you said, they're like, cool. But then you like two queries in, you realize a giant gap or something that's not integrated, or you haven't refreshed this table in the past 30 days, so your data is skewed, like some like huge thing like that. If AI, and you know the vendors are already onto it, but I don't think they've really done it yet. If AI can really tell and learn over time that, that JT loves to receive an email 9.30 a.m. when he first wakes up, and then a push notification after he finishes his coffee after lunch, mm-hmm. And then he's okay to receive a commercial and then also push before he goes to bed. Like there, there's going to be this delicate balance of channels and engagement that no longer feels that it's an overbearing marketing, but instead it's just a genuine reaction of muscle memory of your life. And I know that sounds ridiculous to somebody not in marketing, but if you are in marketing, it's great. Like imagine the day when it is so organic that it doesn't feel that you're being sold to that feel, ooh, that is like, if AI can do that channel optimization that makes things bliss because it truly feels that you don't have to worry about being sold to 
but instead you truly have created this experience. I know so many people at these trade shows and seminars, they talk about that. But the three of us here on the Zoom and other people listening realize that what that actually means is a market operations person that's going to get a ticket and then they scratch their head and like, but I already have six nurtures running. Why don't, do you want to turn those off? Are we doing new content or what? Yeah. Did you check the marketing calendar? Oh, wait, we don't have a marketing calendar. I, we don't even have the vendor to do this push notification, you know, like all these types of things that that's the struggle with market operations have. But the day that AI can really do that to, to learn the channels, that's, that's going to be incredible. I'm excited for that. Yeah, I think that's going to be an exciting day for sure, too. I, I agree with that, like, non-marketers are just like, what? Like, people don't want, like, more ads. But it, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, we had a previous episode uh, with someone that we talked a bit about uh, science fiction. I recently read All Are Wrong Todays by Alain Matze, and in one of his alternate future timelines, he describes a world where advertising isn't just, like, one-to-one -one communication. It's, like, hyper-tailored based on your mood that day, what you had for breakfast, what you're wearing on your feet when you're walking to work, events on your calendar next week. And the protagonist's big idea, he works for one of these agencies, is to offer consumers a flat fee to just completely opt out of all ads forever. And it ends up being a huge flop in 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 the book right now. And um, in that world, like consumers actually wanted to pay for hyper-tailored ads that were like genuinely of value to them and like communicated yeah. at the right time with mm -hmm. like the right message. So yeah, I, I love the the future that you've painted there. There there's a there's a company called We Are Eight. So I'm gonna read the book that you recommend to feel because that that nails it in. So We Are Eight is a colleague of mine at Uber. She works for them where it's it's an opt-in advertising, just as you mentioned, where you get paid as a prospect for each mm. click that you have. And so it changes this dynamic of what if in fact I create my own journey, whatever you want to call it in terms of the brands that I engage with, but I also receive a portion of that click. So instead of $45 per click that you get to Instagram, you may get, you know, 80 cents of that, whatever it may be. So sorry, JT, you were saying something. Yeah, no, it's, it's such a fascinating talk topic. Like when it comes to the advertising perspective and the data model perspective, um, I think about really two different things. One is this like explosion of content that we'll go through as we hit this transition period between we've got all these new shiny tools to create the content, but then also the capabilities to send it out, uh, to tweak it. But then coming back to that utility, I think there's a lot of folks who hate advertising or feel repulsed by it because it's not contextually right. Like you mentioned, like, am I receptive to receiving something with a coffee or not with a coffee? Like how many times you, you know, now we're the Netflix generation, we don't have to watch advertisements, but how many times you watch an advertisement, it takes you out. So the promise of this is really fascinating. Um, back to the trends around like composable and CDP, I admit that I don't have a ton of perspective there, but looping it back, I feel like this idea of the architect, right? The person who can architect everything from a channel strategy, like somebody who understands your tech stack at, on the website of things, uh, understands what the data is coming in from those channels, as well as mixing it in with those things. I almost, I keep on having this thought in my head around this, like full stack marketer or full stack prompt engineer or something like that. Uh, that's a marketer of tomorrow. No, I, that was my my favorite job. Don't tell my current boss this. My favorite job ever was a solutions architect at Marketo, where I was just four days a week, every week of my life, I was on a plane to go visit some customer that had some crazy use case. And they're like, can Marketo do this? And you just whiteboard and you have these incredible ways. Like, well, but I've got this warehouse that's on-prem and I've got this other old tool. And then you just you workshop 
whiteboard, mm-hmm. come up with a design, and then you get to build a little bit of it, and then you fly on to the next one, and it's across every industry. And so that would be, I know JT focused a lot on on career and in the next generation, which I really respect. That to me is one of the most rewarding careers that I had steps would be after you get the sequel, after you get the integrations, the familiarity, you've done deployment, you've done the day-to-day, you know, grind. Then you get to know like all the questions that Phil's asking about, do you like this tool or this tool or this tool? Today, that's what, you know, my my team and what I uh, hope that our customers enjoy paying us for is they pay us for opinions on APIs clunky. You're going to have three put, three put mm-hmm. issues. The vendor's terrible to work with because the renewal comes around and they're going to treat you like crap. You know, like those types of opinions, an architect is so much more rewarding to work with because are you going to have to pay for six FTE engineers to run this integration or is it truly a native integration air quotes for those people listening that we all know this kind of a joke when they say native integration, right? So an, a solutions architect or whatever you'd like to, to call it, JT absolutely is, is, is an amazing career choice for anybody that would be interested in that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. This sounds like a pretty sweet gig, like getting flown around just a whiteboard and just like gem on figuring out how do we solve this like super niche use case. I feel like that's, that's why marketing automation pros uh, are like excited to to get up every day. Like there's is a new problem that that comes around, like finding that solution because ultimately like there's always going to be like five, ten, sometimes hundreds of different ways of doing something. It's about like figuring out what's the most efficient and like logical way of doing it based on the current stack and like the constraints that you have. But yeah, sounds like a, a super fun gig for sure. Got it. Man, this has been a super fun conversation, White. I feel like we could uh, keep jamming and, and, and whiteboard some stuff too on like uh, automating some stuff. But yeah, excited to to keep tabs on uh, Blueprint X and uh, what you guys are, are building for for the enterprise there and uh, maybe eventually someday move that over into startups too because everyone is is hungry for for AI and uh, solving a lot of these like repetitive tasks that, that marketers are doing. We actually asked the same uh, final question to all of the guests that we have on the show. So we are humans of MarTech after all. So we kind of like try to hone in on on the human side of of working in tech for a little bit too. So you're a C-level executive. You're leading a team of 80 plus people. You're a keynote speaker, an avid traveler. You're a drone pilot and also an Eagle Scout award-winning outdoorsman, as well as a successful real estate investor. You've got a lot going on, Wyatt. One question we ask all our guests is how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? That's a great conclusion. I, I like uh, not about you know the, about me, but in terms of the question, I like that. Um, how do I say? I think I think um, to be genuine in this comment, but without sounding ridiculous, to to always pursue humility and realize that we we work in an industry that is so crazy that sometimes it takes itself way too seriously. And I, I tell the team all the time, like I get really stressed. Usually, you know, some junior consultants in a workshop with some really senior people and a customer. Guys, we're not surgeons. We're not saving lives. We're helping people click on emails. Right? You know, it's like a little bit of a joke, but that's how I stay happy is realize that, man, we're so fortunate. Like you guys have an amazing podcast and having a conversation about something we're passionate in. But at the end of the day, we can work from home. We can travel. We can have this digital life. You have the flexibility of having a career wherever, however, with whoever you want. That at the end of the day is just the most rewarding thing and very thankful for that. And then just making sure that you never take it for granted. So that's what I try to be uh, be happy with that. Um, I guess in terms of how I find balance, but everything, um, I, I think, so I moved from the US to Amsterdam. And one of the things that I was really seeking was 
a better quote unquote quality of life. Cause I always kind of had this resentment with, you know, Americans working too many long hours. And I, I realized that, um, growing up on a farm, my parents, they, they were always there at the house and they always were at swim meets. And I didn't realize at very early age, they always had this flexible work schedule where the, I felt like they were working all the time, but it wasn't that they're working all the time. They just, you know, broke up their day to invest in the family. And then they just made up for that later in the evening, that kind of thing. So that's kind of how it's kind of a crappy answer, but find balance where I have to break up the day with gyms. And yeah, you take a two hour coffee break to invest in employees out in the sunshine and have a beer by the canal. And then you bust your ass at 11 o'clock to get a deliverable and a PowerPoint deck for a customer. But at the end of the day, you're not in a coal mine, right? We have a job that's a lot easier than most. And we're very fortunate to have that. But I find balance to make sure that just kind of focus on your your physical mental health above everything else, invest in others. And then you know, career kind of comes after that. Yeah, awesome answer. I love that. I love that perspective. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks so much, Wyatt. Uh, anything else you want to plug to the audience uh, about uh, the agency? Maybe uh, also, I forgot to ask you, uh, what is your favorite podcast podcast to, to recommend for folks trying to get into real estate investing? Oh, so real estate investing. I don't want to be pegged as, as, that, as that guy. No, I'm, I'm quite a humble, uh, like small shot guy. So by no means like this massive tycoon or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if it sounds ridiculous, sorry, but you know, passive income and financial freedom is something that I'd encourage everybody to kind of pursue. I think it's something that's quite empowering to not have to rely upon a paycheck from somebody else. If that is something that you would like to learn more on, I don't know any of the guys there. I've never been on there and I have never been associated with, but better, um, better pockets podcast is quite a good place anywhere that you are interested in real estate, whether you just want to rent out your home, you even want to consider buying a home, you want to refinance, they've got some good stuff and they too don't take themselves seriously and they're quite humble. So I would, uh, I would recommend, um, recommend to listen to that. But other than that, in terms of my favorite podcast would be Checks and Balances by The Economist. I don't know if you asked that, Phil, or not, but I quite like that. For those that kind of like a, a light news that's not so much doom and gloom, Checks and Balances by The Economist is quite good. Nice. Yeah, I'm a frequent listener to to that one. Maybe that's a, a, another question we ask all all the guests, JT, their, their favorite podcast. <laughs> awesome, Wyatt. Really appreciate your time, man. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with us. Likewise, both. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.